someday. Someday, somebody might write a book or save for retirement. Someday I might retire, although I don't think that'll ever actually happen. <laughs> someday, maybe you'll tell your mother how much she meant to you, your father how much he meant to you, or your husband or wife. Someday, someone will quit that job and sell her house and become an artist or a musician or a farmer. Someday, somebody might uh, study their family's genealogy or take piano lessons or cooking lessons or learn to play a guitar. Someday, someone might read the Bible all the way through, not getting bogged down in all those genealogies and numbers or those esoteric writings in Ezekiel, all the way through, start to finish. Someday you might learn to ride a motorcycle. Something I'd like to see. Um, maybe I might paraglide, something that's not likely to happen. Or uh, maybe someday you might skydive. You know, someday. October 13th, 2011, Mr. Richard Byerly of Walla Walla, Washington, together with his two grandchildren, Annie, 29, and Bren, 24, took a six-day trek and climbed Mount Kilimanjaro. At 84 years old, he was the oldest person ever to climb the mountain. Mount Kilimanjaro is 19,340 feet to the summit. He eclipsed the previous record that was set by George Solt, who was 82 years old, 289 days. Reports are that Mr. Byerly didn't suffer any altitude sickness. He just sat at the top and said, my hands were a little bit cold when I got there, but other than that, no problem. It's not the only mountain he's climbed. Mr. Byerly's also climbed Mount Whitney in California, Mount Rainier in Washington. His wife, Beth, had climbed Kilimanjaro 30 years before, and he, he said, um, I thought it was about time I caught up. And so he did. Someday. Someday might be today or tomorrow. I wonder if you could imagine what it would be like that you had scheduled yourself to climb Kilimanjaro. You know, you're going to fly to East Africa. You're going to stay in a hotel. You're going to get up in the morning. You're going to get on a bus and you're going to ride, you know, way off into wherever it is up in northern Kenya near Tanzania, in Tanzania. And you're going to get there and, and you're going to get up in the morning after camping out overnight, and you're going to start climbing the nearly 20,000 feet mountain in the air. What would, it, what would it feel like to be right there on the cusp, ready to do that? You're getting ready to climb. Or the night before, the night before some big event, like, um, I don't know, maybe you're going to run your first marathon, or maybe you're going to skydive, or maybe you're going to get married. Old married people, we forget how scary that was, don't we? Yes. You, you, tomorrow is going to be your retirement. Or you've got major surgery or a C-section scheduled. You know how it is right before someday, when someday gets right here and it's right on the cusp? What do you do? You, you fret, don't you? No, not you, but some people do. You wring your hands. You worry a little bit. Someday, someday is here. I remember when I was a, a, a young boy, about nine years old, um, I went to Kings Island Amusement Park near Cincinnati. I had cousins who used to live near where I lived in Dayton, and they moved to suburban Cincinnati, and they were so close to Kings Island, you could almost walk to get there. It was just a, a, a very short ride. And, and so their parents bought them season passes to Kings Island. But me, I'm up way up in Dayton, and you know we don't, we don't get down there that much. And so I, I, I get down, and I'm spending some time with my cousins, 
And, and we're going to King's Island, and, and we get up that day, and, and we're going, and all I can think about is, you know, like riding rides and eating junk food and drinking copious amounts of soda and, you know, and being really sick at the end of the day. It was just wonderful. Couldn't wait. And, and so here we go. We're heading off to, to King's Island, and I remember standing in line at the first roller coaster I ever would ride in my life, the racers. And I don't know. It, it's, um, now they would be underwhelming by a lot of standards. Wooden roller coaster. And there were two trains, a red one and a blue one, and, and part of the thrill was they went side by side up the, the hill and, and you raced them, you know, who, who got to finish first. But I remember the first hill. The racers have this big hill. And it, it looked to me at nine years old like about the height of Kilimanjaro, you know. And, and you're going up it and it's straight down. I mean, straight, straight down. And, and I remember standing in line. The day had finally arrived. I was finally there. I'm standing in line. I'm about to be next on the, the train, you know, the next on the coaster. And my cousins were veterans. And they saw me sweating and wringing my hands and nervously working. And it was like blood with sharks, you know. I mean, they were just on it. And, and, and they would say to me things like, don't worry, Joey. That's what they call me. Don't worry, Joey. It's fine. It's been weeks since anybody died on this coaster, you know. Um, and then the other one chimed in, oh, Brian, don't you remember that boy last week? Oh, yeah, there was that boy on Friday. I forgot about him. But n- not too many people die on this coaster at all. You're going to be fine. And, and I know this is going to surprise you, but at nine years old, I wasn't really tall enough to ride this coaster. And so they had taken me off to the side and, and gotten you know, some paper and scrunched it up and put it in my shoes. And it made me a little bit taller. And then they took a ball cap and they put it like way up on the top of my head. So it was just barely sitting there. And so I wasn't going to make it unless there was somebody who wasn't really observant. And there wasn't some lazy kid who wasn't doing his job. Let me through the line, you know. And here I was on this roller coaster about to die. I was terrified. And every year I go back there. I try to every year, not every year, but every year I want to go back. And I get in line at the racers only because I want to feel what I felt that day. That, that nervous anticipation, that, that anxiety. And then I get on it, it's so underwhelming now. But back then it was huge. It was so big. In the gospel lesson this morning, Jesus has been in the Transjordan area of Israel, about 50 miles north of Jerusalem. And he's gotten word, you know, somebody has shown up and told him, we have an important message for you. This good friend of yours, a fellow called Lazarus, is very sick. He's he's about to die. If there's not a miracle, he'll likely die very soon. I know how you, I know many of you well enough to know exactly how you would respond if you got this message. If you got a message, your very good friend, somebody who's very close to you, is about to die, I know exactly what you would do. You would drop whatever it is you're doing. You would make arrangements for your children if you had to or, or whatever. You would make sure the dog is taken care of. Uh, and you would be out the door. It would be a few moments of preparation. Some clothes would be hurriedly thrown in a bag. And you would be out the door. You would be on your way to wherever it is that your friend wherever she or he was. This is exactly what happened to Abby and I back in August. A very dear friend of ours, um, we got word. She had had cancer a long time. She's, she's in the hospital, Ohio State. We're there. Not because it was noble. It was decent. This is what people do. This is the normal sort of way you respond. You've been to the ICU waiting room before. You've seen families. This is what they do. They huddle around one another. Jesus is in the Transjordan area. He receives this message. The one that you're very close to, your, your good friend Lazarus, is about to die. 
And he stays, John says, two days longer in the place where he was. That's not the right protocol. Not at all. But that's exactly what he does. And when at last he does arrive, what happens? The two sisters come up. And they say to him the exact same lines. They come up independently, first, first Martha, then later Mary. And they come up, and when they, when they get to Jesus, they say to him, If only you had been here, our brother would not have died. Later on, if only you had been here, verbatim, our brother would not have died. Their friends are less subtle, aren't they? You heard what their friends said. Could not this one who have opened the eyes of the blind have prevented this man from dying? It's a rhetorical question, right? Yes, they could have. Yes, he could have prevented this man from dying. Where were you? We gave you plenty of notice. And still you didn't arrive. Can you imagine the scene as Jesus walks up? As he, he's walking up to the friend, these friends' house, this home that he had been to many, many times. And there are people inside and out. Mary and Martha, their puffy red eyes, crying and crying. Their friends all hanging around, wailing and crying. Jesus walks up. Poor Lazarus has just died. The funeral's already happened. He's already been laid to rest. And here he is late to the scene. I know what we all know about Jesus. We say it every week in our creed, right? Uh, second person of the Trinity. God of God, light of light, very God of very God. We, we know who Jesus is. To Mary and Martha and Lazarus, that's not who Jesus was. They knew he was special. They knew that there was something about him that was unlike anyone else that they had ever met or known in their life. He was a healer. He had power from God. He was, he was an amazing and unique individual. Even among his closest disciples, though, they don't think of him in the way that we understand now. Peter seems to have caught something that Jesus is something special. But even they don't understand who Jesus is. To Mary and Martha and Lazarus, Jesus was their very good friend. Someone I imagine they shared lots of meals with. Stayed up late at night talking and laughing. Drinking wine if they could afford it. It's in there, John chapter 2. He turns water into wine. It happens. So the long night, these are friends. They're close. And, and here Jesus shows up late. I, imagine you have a friend who is a, you know, a, a brain surgeon. Uh, you know, I don't know, internal medicine of some sort is a, is a special, special type of surgeon. And someone very close to you, this is a really good friend, someone has a, has a brain tumor or a, a need or something like that, you would call your friend, wouldn't you? Uh, hello. And what would your friend do? She or he would, they'd be right there, offer what they could. And Jesus arrives late. Too late. Everyone knows that they're going to die. We never want to think about it. We put it off. We push that to the back of our mind. We all know it. Whether you're 9 or 90, though, when you do go, it will be too soon for those who love you. They will, they will grieve. It will be painful. Jesus shows up and his friend Lazarus is dead and he died yesterday. Well, actually last week. He gets there too late. But here's an interesting thing. Jesus goes to the place where Lazarus is dead and John says, and Jesus wept. You know that in the King James, it's the shortest verse in the, in the, um, in the, in the whole Bible. Just two words. Uh, really three words in Greek, but just about 19 letters. Uh, Jesus burst into tears. He began to sob. 
like you do when someone you love passes away. He stands there and he sobs. He's deeply distressed. Twice, John says, he's deeply troubled in spirit at the loss of his friend. But of course, you read the rest of the story. You didn't fall asleep halfway through the reading of it. You know the rest of it, don't you? You heard Sarah read it just a minute ago. And he says, roll away the stone. Oh, no. Are you mad? Are you complete? Have you completely lost your mind? No, he's been dead four days. It'd be, the odor will be ghastly. No, no, no. Roll away the stone. And they do. And Jesus cries out in a loud voice, Lazarus, come forth. And come forth he does. The man who is dead is alive, wrapped in grave clothes, and Jesus says, remove the grave clothes and set him free. This, if you were paying attention, is the seventh sign in John's Gospel. Seven's a big number to ancient Jews. This is the seventh sign. The first sign, Jesus turns water into wine. The last sign, he raises Lazarus from the dead. In between, he heals a child, he, he, he restores sight to a couple of blind people, he walks on the water. He has the, these seven signs, and this is the seventh sign. It's the climactical sign. This one who can raise people from the dead is not just some other person. He's not even just some special person. He is actually God in flesh. And John says he writes these things to us so that we might believe and that by believing we might have life in Jesus' name. But the seventh sign tells us more than just something about Jesus. It tells us something about ourselves. It tells us that those of us who trust in Jesus, who are, who are committed to Him, whose, whose life is hidden in Him, that that life is safe and protected and hidden in God. That that life is not vulnerable to death, but it's actually safe from it and preserved from it. Jesus says to Martha, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever lives and believes in me, even though he die, yet shall he live. And whoever believes in me shall never die. This is what he says to her. Those who believe in Christ, their life is hidden in Christ with God. Today is All Saints Day. It's a remembrance on the Christian calendar, a, a, a day that has been observed actually since before Christmas was even observed. Christians were observing All Saints Day before they actually even observed Christmas or around the same time that they began to observe Christmas. And yet for all of its uh, long history, it seems to be just as much a mystery as ever. The word saint comes from the Greek word hagios, plural hagioi, the saints. The saints were even referred to in, in Old Testament even before that. Paul refers to saints all the time in his writings. For instance, in 1 Corinthians, he says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, Timothy, our brother, to the church of God that is at Corinth, with all the saints who are in the whole of Achaia. Grace to you and peace from God our Father. And he goes on. Later in Colossians, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to the saints and faithful brothers in Colossae. So Paul refers to saints, not just as those who have passed on, but as those who are alive, recipients of his letters. He refers to us over and over again that we are called to be saints, to be holy people. Just as an aside here, we do remember, and we should remember, that saints are for once alive, always alive. That the saints are who are alive, are in the presence of God. Um, someone asked me just this week about 
about the intercession of the saints, you know, a, a practice of, shall we have saints pray for us? And my answer is, it certainly wouldn't hurt, you know, that, that there is a great mystery to prayer. And if I would pick up the phone and, and call somebody and say, hey, will you pray for me? As I certainly would. As you certainly would. Why would we not think that there are other people who could pray for us as well? But for those who are alive, who are called to be saints, there's a realization that saint doesn't mean just somebody who passes on, who's gone, or somebody who's been recognized as a special person. But saints are those whose lives have been set apart for God. Holy is a metaphor, is a modifier rather, for person. Holy persons are saints. We know about holy things, holy buildings, holy days, but also holy people. Some of you know that this building here that we are sitting in right now used to be a physician's office. It was a, um, it was a place where people came and, and visited their doctor, and their doctor uh, prescribed medicines and treatments to make them well. And then there was a flood. <laughs> and then the doctor said, we think we're moving on. And they left the building. And, uh, and so there were a group of, of Christians here in Hudson who said, we need a place to make into a church. And they bought the building and they reconstructed it, and they called a bishop, and it was consecrated and set apart as a holy place. What was a common space had now become a holy, sacred space. We do this with communionware, right? We, we, need a, um, we need a cup and a plate for communion. I'll be honest with you, any cup or plate will do. As long as we had a plate to hold the host and a cup to hold the wine, we could have communion. But we know that this is a sacred meal. And we set apart sacred vessels for this sacred meal. A, a holy cup. A holy plate. The, people's, the people whose lives have been changed by Christ are not changed in, in any way other than, than the fact that they are still human beings. But their lives have now been consecrated to God. Their function is different. But we know there's one other thing about holy people. If we have a holy building or a holy vessel, it can't do anything to change its substance. It just remains what it is. Unless somebody were to come in and do something. You could, you could profane a holy thing, but the holy thing can't profane itself. So if someone came in, vandals, and, and spray-painted the walls, God forbid, or, or, or you know, tarnished the, the holy vessels, then, then they would be, in our, in our understanding, they would be, you know, tarnished in a way, but they didn't do it to themselves. People are different. We have moral agency. We can act in ways that are unholy, even though we ourselves are called to be holy. Even though we ourselves have been baptized and set apart and consecrated and made holy, we can behave in ways that are not holy. We can take what is morally pure and make it less pure. But at the same time, we do not confuse our actions with God's actions. What he sets aside, what he makes holy, is indeed holy. Uh, There's a story of a a young man on a winter's day. He comes to a great rabbi, and he he says to the rabbi, "Um, I want to be a rabbi. And the rabbi is standing at the window, and he hears the young boy, and and the young boy goes on to, to... to wax quite eloquently about, about his, um, his, uh, his piety and his learning. And the young man says to the rabbi, You see, rabbi, I go around dressed in white every day as the ancient sages do. 
I drink no alcoholic beverages. Only water passes my lips. Uh, I wear uh, nails inside my shoes to, to mortify my flesh. So as I walk, I'm in pain. And, and, and even in the coldest weather, I'll lie naked in the snow. Every day I have the synagogue sexton give me 40 lashes to, to further mortify my flesh and to fulfill my penance. And as a young man is talking, a, a, a white horse is led into the, to the uh, courtyard. And as a horse does, it walks over to the trough and begins to drink. And then, as you know, horses do, it kind of fell down in the snow and started rolling around on its back. And the rabbi says, huh, you see that animal over there, dressed thoroughly in white, drinks nothing but water, has nails in its shoes, mortifies its flesh, rolling around in the snow. And I assure you, every day it gets 40 lashes from its rider. Is that a saint or is that a horse? You see, we are made saints by the work of God. The grace of God calls us to be saints. And as we live out that grace, we live out our calling. We receive it and we give it. And saints aren't made someday. They're made today. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit.